professor of anthropology and a participating faculty member in indigenous race and ethnic studies, Latin American studies, and women's gender and sexuality studies. Professor Stephen founded the UO's Center for Latino, Latina, and Latin American Studies and served as director from 2007 to 2016. She was also a 2015-16 Oregon Humanities Center Faculty Research Fellow, and she will be the OHC's 2022-2023 Provost Senior Humanist Research Fellow. Professor Stephen has authored or edited 14 books, three special journal issues, and over 90 scholarly articles and chapters. Her newest books include Indigenous Women and Violence, Feminist Activist Research in Heightened States of Injustice, edited with Shannon Speed, 2021, from the University of Arizona Press, and the book she will discuss today, Stories That Make History, Mexico Through Elena Poniatowska's Chronicas, which was published in fall 2021 by Duke University Press. Welcome, Lynn. We're looking forward to hearing about stories that make history. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you all for being here today and congratulations on making it through what I think for all of us, it's been a tough, a tough first week. Um, so I just wanna say, I am so looking forward to talking about a book um, and it, it's great to see your faces and just you know sending love and energy and uh, self-care out there to all of you. I also want to acknowledge being an appreciative settler guest here on Kalapuya land and uh, thank Paul for that land recognition, which is not for native peoples, but for the rest of us important. Um, I am going to share my screen. So uh, my talk today is about uh, my book, Stories That Make History. And I'm hoping to talk about 30 minutes. Um, I want to thank um, the Oregon Humanities Center um, for having me today, for the support in the past, the support in the future. Um, and I have many, many people to thank, um, and some of them are right here. So it, it really takes, I'm going to talk about how I wrote the book, but I want to start um, some with just a little bit of the theoretical framing in the book, talk about how I wrote the book, concretely the different steps, and then maybe just take you through very, very briefly a few punchlines uh, from the chapters. One of the things I'm really delighted about is this book is open access. Um, so you can go to the Duke University Press site and they have an open access edition. If you go to Amazon, it's available in a Kindle edition. Um, and and that's, that's a really fantastic thing. I wanna also thank um, the Oregon Humanities Center for the subvention grant for doing an index, uh, which is very important for all of us. Um, oops. So I want to start with, which is actually a quote from uh, the end of the book, um, the conclusions. And I'm just going to, I'm going to be reading for the first maybe five or 10 minutes accompanied by some pictures. Historical moments when the status quo is cracked open, when people take to the streets and demand change, when another future seems possible, are the moments when gifted writers and artists step up. The ways that pandemics, massacres, earthquakes, and broad social movements are changed, are represented and documented, can determine their place in history. I suggest that Elena Poniatowska is one such writer who chronicles Mexican history starting for, from 1968. In the book, I talk about the Cronicas as centered in emotional connections forged through writing about politics. The central, the central concept of the book is something I call emotional strategic political communities. And chronicas are a form of writing that really sit at the crossroads of fiction and nonfiction. Um, I'm not going to give a history of the chronica. You can read that in the intro to the book. Um, but it is a form of writing that different people trace back in, in different ways, even pre-Hispanically, uh, to codices and the ways that indigenous peoples documented testimonies and history and it's gone into many uh, different genres. Um, 
Poniatowska forged direct emotional connections between the oral testimonies of the stories she tells and readers, channeling her ability to create complex and rich characters from her novels. She uses the same technique to communicate the full humanity of those stories she shares and links them to a larger political economic to larger political economic and social relationships and structures. And this is a project that I very much have shared in my own career as an ethnographer. Um, and I, I've, I've, this book falls between genres and I actually found it useful. I think it was Laura Polito who's here today who said, well, you know, we would just call this American studies. Um, so I, I kind of like that uh, being identified as an interdisciplinary scholar, uh, as an Americanist, Latin Americanist, you know, so this book really crosses, it is not literary analysis. Um, it's maybe partially biography. It has engaged uh, with some texts. It has engaged with, I've surveyed readers, and I've also looked at performances and exhibits in relation um, to this book. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in how testimony forges emotional connection. Um, and this is an interest I've had for a really long time. So some of the questions I ask in the book are, how do people giving public testimony on repression and traumatic events and those listening become emotionally connected to one another? Can they, through this connection, act together to denounce, document, and engage in obtaining social justice or racial justice? Are they part of emotional communities tying together speakers, listeners, and re readers to difficult and tragic events. Um, part of my ideas have come from interactions I've had uh, with Colombian anthropologist Miriam Jimeno, um, who's written about the concept of emotional community as a way of understanding how people become connected through traumatic events. Uh, and she writes about this in the context of violence in Colombia, particularly violence against uh, indigenous communities and in projects using testimony and collaboration uh, that came out of those experiences. Um, I'm interested in particular in how oral narrative in cronicas and public performances can bring readers and listeners into community with those whose stories are told. Beyond that, I'm interested in the ways that these connections can influence politics. The transfer of oral testimonies that are written, textualized, and shared widely can play an important role in whose voices are heard and by whom. Testimonies widely disseminated can influence the way that historical events are remembered and canonized. Stories that make history suggest that the ways that people's stories linked to pandemics, massacres, earthquakes, and broad social movements can help determine how these events and processes are documented and remembering. And compelling forms of writing and other forms of expression and performance, I suggest in this book, are central to political life. Um, so I want to talk just a moment about this concept of emotional, strategic, political community. Um, it's not about strategic essentialism, but really about strategic strategies of representation that can become political tools for influencing change. They're also about emotion channeled through in-depth testimonies and stories on the page and and in person and how that creates connection between people that may be intense or muted, that endures or fades or is rekindled with time. Emotional connection is forged on the ground and can result in the creation of emotional political community in the moment. The strategic writing involved in documenting and representing such connections and communities may also result in the building of emotional political community among those who read such accounts and through the reproduction of accounts of events and their memorialization, which I write a great deal about, particularly um, recounting and memorializing uh, the 1968 student massacre in Mexico, the 
uh, every year, which still goes on, or the 1985 earthquake, which is also memorialized. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Political performances, which is also another strategy that I write about that Elena Poniatowska and other people use, um, is also a way to build emotional political community in the moment and through time. Elena Poniatowska was drawn to documenting already existing or evolving strategic emotional political communities, as well as helping foster them through her writing and political performances. I'm not remembering my own slides here. So strategic emotional com political community as used in this book is a flexible concept with multiple dimensions that can include on the ground face-to-face -face networks and community building, the representation of such communities in texts, and the possibility of communities of readers. Strategic emotional communities are not fixed and necessarily stable through time. People may move in and out of them. They ebb and flow. At a larger level, writers such as Poniatowska and others actively work to create, preserve, and expand what we might call a strategic, a strategic emotional community of the left in Mexico that was a guiding light for oppositional politics for decades. This has been an important contribution to supporting a broad public and processes of democratization in Mexico. Through straddling the link between activism and journalism, writing and action, Ponya Atosca has been an important public intellectual and political figure, as well, of course, as a literary figure in modern Mexico. How did I come to write this book? Um, I really like this as a part of the invitation of, of giving this book talk. Um, so I first met Elena Poniatowska actually right here at the University of Oregon in May of 2010. And I know I saw that Carlos Aguirre is out here. Uh, Carlos was heading Latin American studies and she came as the Bartolome de las Casas lecturer. Uh, she gave a lecture in Lillis. Uh, you know, the place was packed and she signed books. Um, you know, a fond memory from the before times now. I hope we get, I hope we get back to that. Um, and I hung out with her. Um, I took her to, I think, a used bookstore and she came over to my house uh, 10 blocks away from where I'm sitting in my office in Condon Hall and we had tea. And she said, when you're in Mexico City, call me up and you can come over for lunch. So I was in, I was teaching, I was actually teaching a class at the National Autonomous University of Mexico in September of 2010. And I was there, I think it was two weeks or two and a half weeks. Um, and I called her up and she said, come for lunch. And we had lunch and she said, come back for lunch again. So I, I think I had maybe three or four lunches with her in that two and a half week period. So it was kind of like I would teach my class for four hours and then I would go have lunch for her and prepare. Um, and while I was there, I, I had this kind of idea um, I think it was probably a little naive at the time, but I decided I really wanted to do a book about her, like her story. Um, so we made arrangements the, the following August, I went back and I uh, spent, I don't know, probably three or four solid days going to her house and talking with her and trying to work, you know, the way I had worked as an anthropologist. and. It was a really transformative set of conversations. She pushed back at me a lot. Um, I, she interviewed me too. Uh, and this is Elena, is someone, as I'll tell you, who's interviewed thousands of people. So imagine trying to interview, um, you know, like Oprah Winfrey uh, or someone who, this is what they've been doing for like 40 or 50 years. She was not an easy person to interview, um, but we did, we did kind of figure it out through kind of, I would argue, a mutual, a mutual interview process and probably telling each other some things we hadn't told very many other people. Um, and I went home and, and kind of thought about it and I decided, well, I need to figure out 
a way to write about her that's really different than what other people have said. Um, I'm not a literary critic. This is not an ethnography. Um, and then I began to really uh, think about her kind of as a political figure, a public intellectual, a political figure, and think about the ways that particularly the books that she had written and those that I knew about, uh, La Noche de Tlate Loco, which was published in 1971, that I'll say a word about, but how that had influenced me and how so many people I knew had read this book and talked about it. And the same with Nada Nadie, which is a, a chronica about the Mexico City earthquake. So I came up with this other angle of trying to understand her and her writing and her performances and interventions really as a part of Mexican politics, um, not necessarily the formal political system, but she was written a lot about social movements. She knew everyone in every social movement, in addition to having interviewed almost every culture and literary uh, figure you could possibly imagine uh, in Latin America. So I proposed this to her and she became very excited. She was very interested in you know, that set of conversations. So I basically kind of visited her twice a year in Mexico City. Uh, I would hang out with her in public, uh, which was kind of like accompanying a, you know, a movie star, a very famous person. Um, you know, we would, I would go with her to exhibits or places she was speaking, but we also hung out in her house a lot, went to the bank with her, carried her groceries, um, met her, I met all of her grandkids, got to know you know, got to know her family in that process. She, she met uh, some of, she met one of my kids. Um, so it really became this, um, yeah, ongoing relationship and set of conversations that I recorded. Um, and I, uh, I got this really pivotal uh, Oregon Humanities Center Fellowship in fall of 2016 that was really allowed me to get into the book. Um, I actually sat in an office in the Humanities Center to get away from my own office. And I was able to draft chapter three, which was um, about the 1985 Mexico earthquake and her writing about that and sort of memorializing that and get into the intro. And that was so critical for me. And then I really had to wait another three years till I had a sabbatical um, for a full year. Um, I had a fellowship at the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at USD, and I had a shorter fellowship at the Center for Latin American Studies at Stanford. Um, so I had time to write, and then I also made presentations, and I got really great feedback, again, from a wide range of scholars, from historians, from people in literature, from anthropologists, um, so that was also really, really important. And, and those conversations really changed the book and changed the way I approached the book, um, particularly um, because it was uh, one of the chapters I hadn't drafted at all that became very apparent that was important and that I had no expertise in was I really needed to have a chapter about the kind of the history of left journalism and publishing uh, in Mexico, because if you're talking about creating new publics or you know, critical publics, the publishing business and journalism and the kinds of spaces that were created in Mexico at a time when the mainstream press was really not very open was very critical to the story. So I also spent time with historians who were sort of experts on uh, this kind of history that I, it was completely new for me, but I'm really grateful for them. And um, I also, uh, because this book was sort of in between genres, it was very dicey. I rewrote this book twice. Um, and uh, it, was, it was complicated with the reviews. Um, so I, you know, and some of the, uh, so uh, one reviewer wanted me to write like a very detailed Mexico City based historiography, which was really not my expertise and not my aim. And the other two sort of said, you know, you might consider writing this in a way that's really going to reach a general audience. And I really went with that and, you know, went through a process of making a case for that and and then working with all three reviewers who, 
you know, all were really important in the process of the book in different ways. So um, I also, for the first time, um, worked with an editor to really rewrite uh, and really learn about how to write for a general audience. Um, and that was an amazing learning process for me too. She was incredible. And I, I just learned so much and it stuck with me. Um, and finally, uh, there is a foundation, Fundacion Ponya Tosca, uh, that has become an amazing archives of photograph and other things. So I was able to visit the archive and work with the archivist to get photographs. I couldn't put them all in the book, but I got to see a lot of photographs and you know, interact with them. So um, I'm just going to, let's see, hopefully in about another 10 minutes, um, talk just briefly about who is Elena Poniatowska and then just sort of walk very quickly through the chapters uh, with some points. Um, She's all these different things rolled into one, a journalist, a publisher, an author of novels, short stories, cronicas, children's stories. She's a political activist uh, and a mother and a grandmother. And these would be, these are actually categories that come directly from her. Um, Elena is the daughter of a French father of Polish origin, hence the Poniatowska. If she were male, it would be Poniatowski and a Mexican mother, Paula Amor. She was born in Paris and at age 10, she moved to Mexico. Um, and like her mother had been an ambulance driver during World War II, they took the, she and her sister to Southern France, uh, but her mother, the Amor family had you know, lots of family in Mexico City. So that's where they ended up. I'm not gonna talk a lot about her biography um, Elena was educated in a French school in Mexico City. She's from a very elite family. Um, she actually studied at a Catholic girls school in Pennsylvania in the US. You know, she wore like a uniform and, um, and she had hoped to study uh, at a college affiliated with this Catholic school, Manhattan College, but she didn't get in. She actually wanted to go to medical school. Not that she didn't get in, her parents at that point in time, they were not able to arrange for her to be her, to be there. So she returned to Mexico, um, actually took, you know, sort of um, stenography classes. Um, and she began her career as a reporter for the society column of a mainstream Mexico paper known as the Excelsior. Um, and in the book, I, I write about her experiences as a society reporter. I think her first interview was uh, with the US ambassador to Mexico. Um, and she went on to interview about one, I, you know, there were days when she was, I think she was doing several people a week. Um, so she was constantly writing and constantly interviewing. Um, and she was also working on one of her uh, first novels. So uh, I'm not gonna go a lot into her biography. Um, that's sort of the book takes different phases of her life and weaves them into the chapters about writing that she did, historical events in Mexico and tries to tie that together. So I'll, this is um, the table of contents of the book. Um, as I mentioned, the introduction, you know, writes about testimonies, social memory, strategic, emotional, political communities, a little bit biography, uh, this chapter on Mexico City's uh, growing critical public, and I'll, I'll come back to that. But so this, this chapter um, was the one that was the most work for me because it was new. Um, so I was, tr I was trying to sort of tell this story of how this concept of strategic emotional political community, but the influence of writing, you have to really look at the historical context that her writing and other similar writing exists in. So the chapter really looks at the kinds of spaces and publishing and news that allowed the kind of left or alternative journalism to come through. Um, so I can't put all of them up here, but there were these small publications in Mexico City. There's one called Porque, 
this is a, a photograph from the massacre of students in 1968. Um, and that documented things that no mainstream paper documented. Mainstream papers had these sort of culture sections that a lot of people wrote in, so they weren't like in the headlines, but people like Poniatowska and other writers were writing in these cultural sections of newspapers in the 50s and the 60s in ways that would surprise a lot of people who would argue that the Mexican government completely controlled the press. Um, there are numerous um, publishing houses. I write about the founding of the Fondo de la Cultura Económica, which is kind of, uh, you know, it's a, a government press, but it was started by a very uh, interesting person named Arnaldo Ophil Renal. Um, and I mean, for the anthropologists, they published uh, Oscar, a book of Oscar Lewis's and the government tried to, uh, censor it. Um, and out of that came many other alternative presses. One is called Siglo XXI uh, that Elena Poniatowska and her husband, who was uh, an astronomist, Guillermo Aro, founded. Um, so there are these alternative sort of presses that are founded, several of them. And then uh, in the 80s, for example, uh, La Jornada is a newspaper that Elena started to found. It had a previous relationship with a paper called Uno Mas Uno. Um, and, and so really understanding how news and publishing was really important in Mexico City's, you know, sort of politicized public. I also talk a little bit about um, I don't know even know how to say it in English, but these sort of crime tabloids um, that a lot of uh, historians have done work on in the kinds of letters to the editor and the kind of really talking back to the state that happened in some of those publications. Um, so if you're interested in that topic, this might be an interesting chapter. Um, the second uh, chapter looks at uh, the 1968 student movement and massacre and sort of dialogues uh, with La Noche de Tlate Loco, uh, which is probably Elena Poniatowska's most widely read book, uh, which is a conica. Um, and I, I, I can't like repeat the book, which is amazing, um, but it starts out with a bunch of photographs. Um, it has a lot of testimony sort of woven together um, and it's extremely powerful and it's very interesting to look at the logic of the book, the way the book has been reproduced. And one of the things I really found with this book, and this was what encouraged me to do, I ended up doing a kind of a survey of people who had read Elena Poniatowska and asking like, where did they read this? Did they read it in school? Was it through their family? What kind of impact did it have on them? And it really had this, you know, three or four generational impact from people who are like 22 to people who are, you know, in their 80s. Um, so that was something that was very, very interesting. Um, so again, this is where the, the book moves into this logic of taking these sort of critical moments in Mexican history, looking at her writing about them, but also giving a lot of information about them to understand that and then how people continue to interpret and understand um, these events. Um, the next chapter uh, is called the 1985 Earthquake Civil Society and a New Political Future. Again, um, it's based uh, in part on her book, Nada Nadie, um, which is about this uh, incredible earthquake in Mexico City that probably killed about 10,000 people that took a very long time to recover from. Um, and this is actually the photograph there is kind of a, a, a photo. It's from an exhibit that memorializes uh, the earthquake, um, but showing sort of civil society, uh, literally, you know, people going out into the streets with shovels and picking through, you can see the rescue workers there. Um, and Elena actually, she started out like filling up a bucket with uh, rubble and bringing people sandwiches 
Um, and I think it was her friend, Monsi Weiss, and one of her editors who called her up and said, you know, have you thought about writing about this, about getting out there, you know, with the tape recorder and recording what's going on? So she sort of transitioned from doing that, but she also continued to offer a lot of different kinds of support. So it's a, it's another super amazing, compelling uh, book and also documents sort of the building of different kinds of social movements, many of which existed before the earthquake, but really got a lift and really got a lot of, you know, very broad support. And I argue in the chapter really, you know, changed politics in Mexico City. Uh, Mexico City, like DC before, didn't have an independent government. It does now. Um, and it really changed the way that power was allocated in the city. And the book also documents um, some incredible social movement actors like Evangelina Corona. Um, this is a pretty recent picture of her with Elena. Um, Evangelina worked in as a seamstress in a textile factory. And there were many, there, were, there was a collapse of a lot of textile factories. Um, people were buried inside and of course the machines were buried and the owners of the factories came in to get the, you know, get the machinery out before they even dealt with the, the mostly women who work there. Um, so the women and their families were engaged in this incredible work of, you know, trying to get people out. Then they formed a union. And I actually was in Mexico City uh, when this happened. I was doing my dissertation writing uh, and, and went to Mexico City in time for the second aftershock and spent several weeks there. Uh, and actually connected with the seamstresses and other, other folks. So it, it has a personal connection, but Evangelina engaged with the president of Mexico. Um, this chapter sort of looks at what I try to do is contrast and in a parallel way, like what people were doing on the ground and the response of the state. Um, and there's a interesting uh, Miguel de la Madrid who was president ultimately wrote his own like super long, he calls it a testimonio of his presidency. And reading his text with Elena's, it's almost like they're talking to each other um, because they're about the same actors uh, and they recount, recount some of the same events. So that was one of the most interesting sort of textual conversations I looked at. Um, the next chapter is called Engaging with with the EZLN. Um, and it really focuses, again, the Zapatista movement was something that I did research with and engaged with. So I have this other connection with it, but um, this, is, this is a chapter, there's no you know, book chronica, but Elena wrote a lot of uh, newspaper chronicas. She exchanged letters with Subcomandante Marcos um, she got very interested in sort of Zapatista gender politics and got into some heated discussions with Marcos and other people. And she really came to um, want to support and promote uh, in many ways, indigenous women and really uh, push on, you know, where they were in the national imagination. And this, so this chapter is actually a lot about gender, ultimately. Um, it has a discussion of abortion and abortion politics within the EZLN. Um, and it also engages with Elena's own uh, engagement or not with abortion and uh, trauma that she suffered as a young woman becoming a single mother um, in trying to understand you know, this great gap between an elite Mexico City writer and Zapatista indigenous women and the connections that, that she had there. Um, um, the next chapter focuses, I mean, it sort of departs from uh, another book that she wrote that uh, has, I don't think as nearly as many people have read this account as uh, the other uh, things I've referred to. It's called Amanecer en el Zócalo. 
and this was after the, I was actually in Oaxaca in a different occupation of the entire city at the same time, but um, Andres Lopez Obrador, who is now president of Mexico, this was his first attempt, um, um, centered a very large occupation in the Socolo for about 50 days that basically occupied the city, tied up traffic. Um, and this book is very interesting because it's kind of a cross between a diary, um, Elena and other people camped out literally in the Socolo um, and were a part of this, but she, then she's documenting all these extraordinary people who've come from all over Mexico and are cooking for people and are performing for people and are moving water for different purposes. And she also, uh, she became engaged in the formal political campaign of Lopez Obrador. Um, and she sort of documents these different encounters with indigenous women in, in Chiapas or in, uh, in the Yucatan or these political meetings that are really, you know, boring and full of self-interested politicians. Um, so it's really, I, it's, one of the most interesting books uh, in terms of really documenting both as a chronica, just like documenting these things that happen and then her own reflection on it to the limits and challenges of formal political systems of the particular social movement that was attached to AMLO and then how they interface. And she really asked these questions about what is it, what is a politician, what does it mean to be a political actor. What is participation? Is what's going on here? Is this participation? Um, so it really sort of interrogates, you know, all these different aspects of of politics. Um, the next to last chapter is called "Regresenlos: The Forty Three Disappeared Students." from Ayotzinapa. Um, in September of 2014, um, 43 students were disappeared uh, in the state of Guerrero, who actually, um, they, they had commandeered some buses. It's a long and complex story, but the punchline would be now that the parents, we still don't know what happened to most of these students. They've identified the remains of two. There's a very active ongoing social movement of the classmates, the parents, the siblings uh, of these students. Um, and Elena Poniatowska has written about them. Um, I focus a chapter on one particular speech that she made um, in the Sokolo with, I don't know, thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and she um, collaborated, used a, a, a text from another writer, but read like a little, identification of each student with their names. And then everyone shouted, give them back. Um, so this is a, the slide just features one quote, ¿Cuál es el futuro de un país donde el Estado mata a sus estudiantes? What's the future of a country where the state is killing students? And this, the movement with the students and the way that she and many other people you know, are really putting the 1968 massacre of students in conversation with the disappearance of these students, the state cover-up, um, and the ongoing, even, you know, in the current administration, there's a task force, there are investigations, but there has not been anything concrete, and there's recognition. Um, but that's, I, I have to say, <laughs> of all the inheritances of, of this book, you know, the fact that this is still ongoing uh, for these families and, and it just reflects a larger state of disappearance and impunity in Mexico, that is, that is a great sadness. Um, and Elena has, and other people have used their, you know, political performances. I focus in the chapter how, I mean, she publishes lots of books. There's book fairs that she presents at. So instead of presenting herself, she calls up, you know, some of the parents or the siblings or the classmates of these students to speak to, you know, the public. Um, 
So um, I, I guess I also just wanted to conclude sort of asking the question about, you know, the future of this form of writing. And it's a, it's a you know, future de la crónica. Um, I think we, you know, we can look in our own country, it's usually called creative nonfiction. Um, in Mexico, we can look at other crónicas, other generations uh, of writers um, who've written crónicas. I've put up just a couple examples, but I think it's an extremely important and compelling form of writing. Um, and I've been, uh, I've been very inspired by, you know, working with Elena, looking at all of these questions and um, really, you know, as I look down the road in front of me um, to be motivated to be writing in a way um, that reaches a lot of people um, and that has that kind of focus. So that's what I have to say. Um, so thank you all very much. Thanks so much, Lynn, for that uh, really interesting book in print talk. Um, let me remind everyone that we have time for Q&A, and the way to do that is to type your questions into the chat of Zoom, and I will ask them to Lynn and moderate the questions. Um, I'll ask the first one, Lynn. You finished on the your interest in writing for a general, uh, a wider audience, and you talked in interesting ways about the work you did with an editor to try to transform an academic book into a book for a general audience. Can you tell us one or two things that you learned during that process that you're going to take away in your future work? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I guess the first, the first would be, I mean, I remember, you know, the first, just getting rid of how we write as academics, like really looking at vibrant, you know, producing characters, producing sound and color and, you know, really thinking paragraph by paragraph in that sense or, and how to connect things, not just making an, you know, like an abstract connection, um, thinking through, uh, you know, and writing with fewer words or taking out words <laughs> and looking at the words that, that I use and, um, you know, which ones are powerful and which ones are superfluous or sort of don't, don't need to be there. Um, I, I know that's not, maybe that's not very helpful, but, um, and just the feeling of the writing, like what, and, and thinking emotionally, like what, reading back what I'm writing, like how does this connect with the reader? How does this emotionally engage and connect, you know, with a possible reader? So I, I, I don't know if that's helpful, but those are a couple of things that, um, you know, come to the top, you know, like from comments, like this is an interesting story, but it's boring. Make it come to life. Look at what you did on page, you know, 343, where you wrote this amazing paragraph. Write another one like that. Uh, thanks so much for that. Uh, Laura Polito has another related question, which is how did you get the press to make it free and open access? Um, well, I basically had to raise $10,000. Uh, um, and I uh, actually, you know, I'm an incredibly fortunate person at the U of O because I have a night professorship. So I used some of that money um, from, you know, every year I have $25,000. I use that to support grad students. I use it to support events. I've used it to support bringing faculty members here. So I use that. And I also use some of my own savings, um, to do that, um, about $5,000 of my own money and $5,000 from the, uh, night fund. Um, and that's a cheap, you know, I had to also argue with the press about how much it was going to cost. Um, so I think there's some presses that have funds for that, but this, it was very important to me because one of my other motivations for writing this book was just amazement at how few people in the U.S. knew about Elena Poniatowska or any of this history. Um, and she's, you know, you mentioned her name anywhere in Latin America or, or, you know, even in Latino, some Latino communities here, Latin American communities, everyone has heard of her. Um, but, and she's an amazing writer. So 
getting that out there in as many ways as possible, public, you know, open access is one way to do that. And of course, everyone in Mexico is writing to me, ¿Dónde está en español? ¿Cuándo sale en español? You know, when's it going to come out in open access in Spanish? And that involves, you know, translation. It involves, um, this is not a book where we can just like give it to a translator. It actually involves going back to my interviews with her, getting the original statements as she said them. There are a lot of quotes that are from books in Spanish. So we, in other words, we don't want a translation of a translation. So it's going to require um, some work, but I look forward to doing that and getting open access uh, in a, a press in Mexico or in Latin America can, can also be really challenging, but we'll work on that. I've had several of my books published in Spanish and you know, we'll get, we'll get there. I don't know if it'll be open access, but great question. Um, the next question is whether Elena Poniatowska has read the book and told you about her response to it. Uh, yeah, she's read several drafts of it. Um, and I, I actually have on my phone a little video of her talking about the book. Um, but yeah, we met, I mean, um, when I finished the first draft, you know, because there's a lot of things that she says. Um, so I wanted to check all of the quotes with her um, and she started correcting her own quotes. I said, well, we can't do that. You know, we, have to, we have to go with like what was in the, what was in the conversation. Um, but she, and she also, I could kind of see the training from, uh, I don't know, this Catholic girl school, you know, she, she went into the English and she said, you know, it'd be better to say it like this or like, you know, so she made some writing suggestions too. Um, and then, I mean, that was the first draft and then I completely, you know, re kind of tweaked it with this, the history of publishing and all these different things. And I would talk to her periodically, but I mean, we email often um, or I would communicate with her. And um, so she's, and, and then I showed her, you know, the PDF. The last time I saw her was in August. Um, and I spent a, a fantastic day with her. And um, finally, you know, she actually got the physical book. So yes, yeah, she's probably seen too many versions of it, but she, she seems to like it a great deal and has offered, you know, to help try to get it published in, in Mexico. Um, the next question has to do with the genre of the chronica and your interest in it, but in particular in the kind of your understanding of the particular agency or efficacy of that genre versus other genres. I obviously, it's one that is central to your concept of emotional strategic political community. Is it, in your view, particularly suited to advance emotional strategic political community? I would say yes. Um, and I mean, I'm looking, you know, if we look at this style of Kronika, there, there are many, many other people writing in this car style. Carlos Monsivais, uh, who's a very good friend of Elena Poniatowska's, is probably the other, you know, extremely well-known writer. Um, there's a young writer who's actually, I'm really honored, he's going to be a discussant for the book. Um, uh, Wow, I'm thinking of his dad, um, but Villoro. Um, so th there's, it's a very well-known genre, you know, in Mexico and Latin America. So I think that the way that it combines testimony, you know, deep testimony, it's not like, it's not like, you know, three sentences. It's, it could be a page and a half, it could be longer. And in this style, you sort of pull together individual stories, but you're, you're tying them, you know, to larger events, to politics, to, to economics, you know? So in, like I said, I really identify with that kind of writing strategy. Um, so I think, and, and Elena Poniatowska is particularly talented at, really bringing out character, like a full human. I think, I can't remember, I write about, you know, she in, in like a three sentence description, before someone starts talking, you have a sense of this person, right? Just in, in how they're described. So I think part of it is also thinking about people who are giving testimony. And this is something I've struggled with for decades in representing 
people in film on the page, like how do you, creating not a, a flattened character, right? They're not filling a slot, you know, to support your theory. Um, how do you represent them as a whole person, you know, without writing a whole book about them and then, and then put out their, you know, what they've identified as their testimony. Um, so I think it's the combination that it's not just one person's story, it's many people's stories, um, the way those stories are written and connected that really links with, you know, links with, with readers. And it may, you know, it may, it may have something to do with also, I don't know, you know, how people learn to engage with stories and reading. And there are differences perhaps, you know, in Mexico and the US, I, I hate to make nationalist broad generalizations, but story, you know, story is very important. And we can look at, um, you know, we can, we can look at Latinx writers. Uh, uh, I have a friend, Pat Zavea, who participated in a book edited by, I think, 12 women, you know, that's all about testimonials. It's all about testimonies and how those work. So, um, you know, there's some, something important, I think, also in uh, community, in, you know, culturally, in terms of the importance of storytelling and testimonial and how that's like a regular thing or how people engage with that. I, I would be really interested to hear other people's thoughts on that because um, there's a lot of people in the room who, who are <laughs> engaged with those issues in their own work. And So the next question is about um, the aspect of the presentation where you talked about how you came to write the book and the sort of process that you went. And one of the things that this questioner is interested in is that experience you had get, sort of getting up to speed on the history of the left uh, newspapers in, in Mexico City. Say a little bit more about the way that your profile as an intellectual has been transformed by this process of writing this book. Okay. Um, well, I guess I've been working in Mexico since 1984. Um, and I've, I've actually done several books where I partially engaged with Mexico City. And as I mentioned, a lot of the events in the book, obviously not 1968, but beginning with the earthquake, the Zapatistas, Ayotzinapa, uh, in 2006, those were also events in my life and times when I was in Mexico and sort of engaged and writing about those. Um, so um, in terms of, you know, so I have, I have a rough, you know, I read newspapers, I read books. So I had a rough understanding or I thought I had an, you know, like a, a regular person's understanding of, of the news. Um, but when I, um, it, it actually was in a conversation a lot with a historian named uh, Matt Vitz at uh, UCSD. Um, and a couple of other people at UCSD who are historians and a political scientist who really have focused on publishing and journalism in Mexico. Um, and Pablo Picato is another Mexican historian who's uh, written about the press, Benjamin Smith. Um, and, you know, in conversation with Matt, he said, you just, you have to do this other chapter. <laughs> it's like, so necessary. And I was like, I don't have any basis for doing that. I really, you know, and so I just, um, I began reading a lot of other people's work. He, he gave me a list of 20 books to read. Um, I read those books and I learned about other books and uh, I'm really grateful to him. I had multiple conversations with him. He read, you know, five of the chapters and commented in public and we had, you know, private conversations. So really, an incredibly generous historian and among other people and even the reviewers, um, they were all historians um, and, and they were really helpful, you know, in providing additional sources. They're all Mexicanists, they all know about Mexico City. Um, so sort of, you know, making my, and, and learning to me, it was actually really interesting and exciting uh, and one of the things that was important was, you know, there's this, there are, there are always narratives about the hegemony of the state and state control uh, and state control of the press. So the sort of 
conventional myth about the PRI is that the PRI controlled the press completely in Mexico, right? And that's not the case. Um, there were these other ways, other forms of writing, uh, other, as I mentioned, like these cultural supplements inside state controlled newspapers or other ways that people were writing. So I actually got really interested in that um, as a really important story um, in, in the narrative of you know, publishing. And then um, it was very clear to me in talking uh, not only with Elena, but other people in and around her. Um, I did interview some other people, a number of the interviews I didn't use in the book, but how, you know, like if you don't have a press to publish your cronica or you don't have a newspaper to publish your story, no, you know, it, none of this is gonna happen. So I, I realized how important those spaces and, you know, publishing is. So I would say it, it, it served an important purpose in this book, but it's also something that now I, you know, I am paying a lot of attention to and, and, and interested in. So we're almost at the end of our time. This will probably be the last question. You spoke about um, the, the way in which her work helps to explain how certain kinds of strategies of representation uh, can serve as political tools for advancing political change. And also in your fifth chapter about what does it mean to be a political actor? Mm -hmm. And this question is interested in, um, now that you've come to the end of this project, how are you, how are you understanding what it means for her as a political, what kind of political actor has she been through her writing? Now that you've done all this work, how do you feel about her legacy as a, as a writer and also as a political activist? Well, she's got an incredible legacy as a writer. I mean, I haven't even touched on, you know, 80% of her writing. Um, and she still, she still writes a column for La Jornada. You know, she's still writing, I don't know, every two weeks. Uh, she just finished uh, the second of a two-part novel about, it's actually about the Poniatowski family in part. It sort of interweaves her personal story. I mean, these are novels, right? With the story of her family, but I think it's like also her way of commenting personally. Um, I think she's, you know, she has been stigmatized to a high degree, she's faced death threats. Someone broke into her house just a few weeks ago. Um, so she's paid a very high price for being a political person through time. I mean, she's, you know, she has been a champion for many different social movements beginning in the 1970s and the late 60s. Um, so she's constantly on the phone with, you know, people from social movements. She's helping, you know, raise money for people. Um, she's receiving people in her house. Um, so I think, you know, she, she's, she's sort of showing by doing. Um, I, I think her relationship with the current president is very complicated. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to go too far on commenting on that. She's, you know, accompanied him. She's uh, really paid a very high price for accompanying him. And right now, um, there's a lot of issues tied to him and what's going on in Mexico. So I think, I think she's at more of a distance and she's, um, I think her legacy as a writer and as a political actor, you know, is well understood in Mexico and will be even further understood um, in the future. What's amazing is how many very young people like 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 engage with her engage with her work and are excited by it. And to me, that's the barometer uh, of the impact that somebody is having. When you're getting you know, young people excited and engaging with them, then some, something really amazing is happening. And that's, uh, that's where I would stop. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much, Lynn. Um, it's just been such a pleasure, so interesting. Thanks everyone for joining us for Lynn yeah, Stevens' book in print talk on stories that make history, Mexico through Elena Poniatowska's Chronicas. 
For more information about the Oregon Humanities Center, our upcoming sponsored events, and our UO Today interview show, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu. Take care, everybody. Uh, keep up the good fight. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.